The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. Wall Street posted seven straight winning week as optimism over potential rate cuts grows. But New York Fed President John Williams tells CNBC markets may need to wait a bit longer. We aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. We're very focused on the, the question in front of us, which as Chair Powell said, the question is, have we gotten monetary policy to a sufficiently restrictive uh, stance in order to ensure that inflation comes back down to 2%. Shipping giants MSC, Hapag Lloyd and Maersk say they will no longer travel through the Suez Canal following a spate of attacks on cargo ships. Maersk CEO Vincent Clark will be speaking to CNBC. Don't miss that interview at 5pm CET Tuesday. Elsewhere, Germany, France and the United Kingdom calling for a ceasefire in Gaza as pressure grows on Israel following the deaths of three hostages over the weekend. And shares in Chinese artificial intelligence firm SenseTime plunged to an all-time low after its founder is reported dead. Uh, we're going to check in actually on the world of AI and the metaverse with improbable CEO Herman Narula later this hour. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, great. Good lion today, huh? Uh, you may have done. I was up at three o'clock as usual. <laughs> Ready to come into work. It's uh, obviously the countdown to Christmas, so we have slightly shorter programming. Yeah, I, and, and I just want uh, the viewers to know that I lobbied strongly against this. Uh, and I was, I think it was about 10 to 1. The, the voting on this one as well. But, uh, so occasionally he can lose arguments, and this was I, a, I, a I lose arguments on a rig. I, I bow office. to your better wisdom and that of our head of news and the team as well, who all decided 7M was a better start. Yeah, but. I hope the viewers also enjoyed a lion too. <laughs> so, so don't get up early this week. Have a lion and uh, tune in at 7 uh, London time anyway to, to watch us. But it's a big week, isn't it? Let's it is a huge um, move week, on yeah, to which what is exactly why I was ready for me at six <laughs> o'clock. But was anyone sitting here at six a.m. Well, this is the question. Then we're more left after what we've had of the last couple of weeks, in particular last week, the icing on the cake. Investors had already pushed markets to uh, fairly extreme levels to the point we were talking about overbought territory on U.S. markets, and then we had the Fed suddenly turning dovish, the pivot that we'd waited all of 2023 for. The central bank finally went there, and nobody had really anticipated. So what we saw. Uh, further gain for markets in terms of uh, the Friday session. A little bit more on the Nasdaq, as you can see. Nothing left for the S&P 500, really struggling across that finish line. For the Dow, another tenth of a percent. The upside, big moving names. If you look at the stock level, it was Boeing, one of the big positive contributors for the Dow. It was Microsoft elsewhere. But one of the laggards was Apple, which undermined some of the fortunes of the S&P and the Nasdaq. But in terms of just how strong it has been now, seventh positive session in a row for the Dow and also for the Nasdaq. In terms of the trading week, seventh pulse of trading week for the Dow, up 2.9% last week. The S&P, despite that fade on Friday, still up about 2.5% for the trading week. And for the Nasdaq, about 2.8% for the week. Also very strong as we talk about a seventh positive winning streak in a row. These major markets now for the year, very, very positive. 41.5% higher year to date for the Nasdaq. Uh, fairly mighty performance is what we've seen. I want to take you to Treasuries. 
The market was getting a little bit of pushback in that Friday session from one of the Fed speakers, from John Williams, effectively trying to communicate that it wasn't just a one-way bet now on rates and uh, effectively saying there's no talk of easing uh, by policymakers that markets just really weren't listening to that say that effectively if we still see this inflation problem and we know this narrative that the central bank could still be active and i think that's what many uh, were just disregarding last week we saw piling into the rate cut story for those that had been on the more hawkish page and as a result we saw a very large swing in these yields 2.91 where we're sitting still below that four percent mark so we haven't regrouped even with that pushback friday from the uh, Fed speakers. So uh, the decline, we had 33 basis points coming off this 10-year yield last week. The biggest weekly fall since 2020. And at the short end, we saw that tackled as well, 4.42%, 28 basis points down, the lowest close since mid-May on this yield. It had an impact on the dollar. Dollar knocked off its perch last week, uh, but you can see morning session. We've got sterling euro in the front foot too, uh, fighting it up the greenback, 126.88, up about a tenth of a percent. A lot of other central banks in action last week too. We're off the 110 and the 110 mark with the euro dollar trade 109.16 but still bouncing two tenths of a percent. On watch for the Bank of Japan this week. That's key. Nobody wants to be caught off guard for a second week and we've got the Bank of Japan meeting tomorrow. There is a view though in the market that April is now the favourite time scale for the kickoff and negative rates. And the, the fact is that the market's now looking for any communication around timeline, when it will happen and how it will happen. So that is the one we're watching. And you can see a lot of territory has been claimed by the yen off that uh, the, the higher watermark that we saw earlier this month. Dollar yuan climbing morning session. Asian markets. So this is how we're traveling across the board. We're in the red. So that fade coming into these markets. Hong Kong's down the most. One and a quarter percent give back. Uh, modestly down bit for Australia. For Chinese stocks down half of a percent. A little bit more coming off the Japanese stock market. But I just headlined it is one to watch around event risk this week. To the European futures. The early action across Europe also looking somewhat muted. Downbeat on the FTSE, two tenths down. Uh, we saw some fairly decent territory claimed by these major boards last week. Two tenths up on French stocks and we are just drifting off the record this morning. Apparently, according to these futures on the DAX, about a quarter of a percent down on stocks out of Italy. Now, I mentioned the Fed speaker and a little bit of pushback that came through Friday. The New York Fed president, John Williams, has told our US colleagues the central bank isn't looking at loosening policy just yet. We aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. We're very focused on the, the question in front of us, which, as Chair Powell said, the question is, have we gotten monetary policy to a sufficiently restrictive uh, stance in order to, to ensure that inflation comes back down to 2%? That's the question in front of us. That's what we've been really thinking about for the past five months, and I think we'll be continuing to think about for some time. We'll be hearing from Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby later this afternoon. Don't miss that exclusive conversation at 14.30 CET. Uh, and the point there, of course, is, um, do you know what, actually, I'm going I'm to do something really naughty. And uh, the producer's just throwing their bits of paper in there. Um, we've got um, Amrita Sen with us uh, from Energy Aspects. Yes. We've uh, also got some breaking news coming too. Okay. Uh, I should just get that out of the way quickly. Right. Um, Software Agar out with news. A decision to issue a public delisting tender offer. Uh, this as the company saying the delisting offer will not be subject to completion conditions. Uh, the company is selling its web methods and stream sets of business. Agreed a purchase price and that amounts to 2.1 billion euros. It is subject to clearing adjustments. Transactions expect to be completed in the second quarter of 2024. A deal widely watched by the market as we talk about uh, the sale of these assets.
Okay, I had no idea. Um, right, okay, um, Amrita Sen is with us as well. And the reason why I bring you in is because your world, well, you inhabit a macro world. You're not just covering oil as well. But, but I think it's very interesting that everybody, as of last week, is now stunningly excited about the prospect of rate cuts from the Federal Reserve and putting the pressure on all kinds of assets and all kinds. In fact, it's reframed the debate yeah. for the whole of 2024. I just want your impressions on that as well, given we just had those comments further from Goldsby yeah. as well. Market now expects over 100 base points of cuts. Actually, the Fed's only talking about 75. And I think the Fed also did walk the sentiment back a little bit saying, yes, we are going to cut, but probably the market's become a bit too excited. Look, it was definitely um, more than we thought they would come out with, for sure. Uh, but at least for energy markets, I'd say this much that, you know, a rate cuts doesn't necessarily mean all things are going well. If anything, it means that the economy is slowing. That means energy demand is, is actually going to be coming off a bit. And I think you can interpret it in two ways. And you can see oil's rally has lagged other asset classes. I think other asset classes are very much like, okay, the tightening cycle is over, um, you know, it is. And you do see that, that oil tends to lag assets during the first two rate cuts, and then it kind of catches up. Oil is down for the year, yeah. which again, you and I, and Karen and all the other brilliant people you speak to have discussed ad infinitum. Is this a failure of policy from the sellers of products this year, or is it just the grim reality that many of the users, especially China, are just not using as much as they thought they would. Is it, think, that, is it that simple? I think China, it's a very good point you raise because Chinese demand, the last numbers on refineries, are actually down quite a bit and more so than we thought. Um, partly just driven by the fact that they don't, they're not getting enough product export quotas. It's a government policy linked to the environment. Uh, and demand has obviously come off a lot since the pre like post-COVID opening. But I think one of the things we have actually seen this year in oil is the effect of high interest rates. People have destocked an enormous amount of inventory right throughout the year. I think that just means that you know balances haven't necessarily been bearish. And I just got back from the US and all the financials are asking me the same question, whether it's an equity hedge fund or a macro hedge fund saying, you know, we do see the draws on the numbers, but the market doesn't feel it. But when you're destocking so much, there's always prompt oil available. And I think that's something to watch out for for next year. If that destocking cycle is over, if we actually start getting the Fed cutting rates, the balances don't look super exciting, but we know OPEC is going to be very disciplined. Um, I think compliance is going to be very high in Q1, more than people expect. And then I think the destocking ending, SPR is rebuilding, will actually help oil a little bit. Out of all the fund managers uh, that we've been speaking to around forecasting for next year, mm. one of the themes that's jumped out around headline risk is geopolitics. It's right up there, pretty much number two in a lot of the, the different mm -hmm. fund assessments for 2024. We know that can impact the oil market specifically. Do you see the geopolitics still as a headline risk coming into 2024? Well, only because there's zero risk premium right now. And I think it's interesting uh, that you're at least asking me about uh, geopolitical uh, risk premiums because in none of these uh, meetings in the last two weeks, that's even come up. It's all been about the Fed and the rate cuts and China um, and OPEC policy. And there is a lot of risk right now in the market with what's going on in the Red Sea, with the Houthis, uh, but also even Venezuela. What if the sanctions do come back? And there is a potential they do because you know, this is being led by immigration policy, not by oil policy. There are a lot of these pockets. Um, the market's completely dismissed it, in part because OPEC does have spare capacity. But I do think it's very important to realize that spare capacity is actually being held by the most disciplined producers. It doesn't mean they're going to bring it back that quickly. Mm.
So when we think about the geopolitics and what could be in the market takes a more heightened awareness of the geopolitics, what would it be? Because, you know, you mentioned the Houthis and I think the market is always very careful about shipping lanes. Mm. Uh, equally, I mean, we've had another a missile fired from yes. North Korea, something the market's sort of used to these days. I mean, what, what, what would cause the market to, to take notice this time around? I think what I'm seeing in this space right now is that fund managers have been really badly burnt in oil this year, right? And we've seen some big down numbers as well. We need confidence back. For that, I think it's as simple as draws need to happen. Crude stocks need to draw in the US globally. We are seeing that in the December numbers, but we need to see that in Q1. Um, we do think with OPEC cuts, we're not going to get the bills. But I think the market needs to believe that. Once it believes that, and we don't have any outages right now, by the way, Libya, Nigeria, the usual suspects are all producing very, very well. So if you do get, for whatever reason, an outage, but also draws, confidence is going to come back in oil. Um, we, we briefly touched upon the teapot refineries and, mm -hmm. and China as well. I just have been so underwhelmed by the Chinese economic recovery, and I can't see how it gets better this year, because we're not seeing some knockout stimulus as well. The Chinese, like every other nation, are getting worried about their fiscal position mm -hmm. as well. I, I hear what you're saying about the political risk, uh, zero risk premium to the upside. And, and on all the things that you and Karen talked about, I, I'm never going to argue with you about those mm. things. They could all trigger. But I'm, I'm, when everyone's telling me the risk is to the upside and we have a floor around about 70 bucks on WTI because yeah. of the SPR rebuild or have you, I, I get very nervous about everyone telling me that we're going, we're, we're basically got a, a, almost like a call. Uh, you, know, like, you know what a call looks like? You have a, a limited amount that you pay for it and, and then, then there's any upside. Yes, of course. Yeah, so yeah. It's, like, it's like the market's got a long call position on. I, I get very worried when everyone tells me that's the, the same case. Thing. Yeah, of course. Look, the one thing I would say is that positioning is very short. This is record short right. positions. Okay. It's as much as we had during COVID. That's a bit much. Demand is still going to grow. Next year, we have demand going and this by... Is the, so this, is the this is the financials, financials rather than the industrial users. No, absolutely. What, what is their logic? The financials? Yeah. Just because they've just gotten out of this market. It's not that they are necessarily putting on new shorts. Right. CTAs are, yeah. but there is just no long. So the net shorts is what I'm talking about. Right. Is as low as what we've had during COVID. And I look at that and I'm like... Well, fundamentals I mean, are okay. That's really important what you just said there, and I really want to just yeah. expand that. And sorry to interrupt, but I just want to expand. Yeah. So we're not saying that vast numbers of people are short. We're just saying a vast number of people ain't long anymore. Yeah, like right. there's okay. there's <laughs> hardly anybody <laughs> long, but also there are some shorts. Not not I wouldn't say that there are like massive amounts, but there mm. are shorts. So I think what you then get is that's why we're saying that you need a catalyst. If you get a catalyst, you'll get the shorts cover the CTAs in particular, the high-frequency guys, but then you will also see some of these longs that are no longer there coming back to the market. And th that's why I am a bit more confident that I'm not saying the balances are hugely bullish, but I am very confident in OPEC's abilities in, in order to stem the big bills that should happen seasonally. That's one. Secondly, on China, you know, this year, the economic recovery hasn't been great. I 100% agree. Oil demand still up one and a half million barrels per day because... Was that a first half story? Um, I would say first half, but even now, you are getting more like half a million barrels per day year on year. That's what we're expecting for next year. I was just there last month, and I think the big change I see in China, it feels so much more Western than when I was there pre-COVID. I've been back this year That's twice. A lot more people. It's much more about consumers driving, 
uh, going out to restaurants. It's not as industrial anymore. I think that's why there's a disconnect between the oil demand numbers and the macro numbers. So oil demand will grow at about half a million next year as well. And I think that's why, yes, definitely macro story, no way gung-ho. And we are concerned about it as well. But I'm not too worried about it falling out of bed either. Should we talk about climate change in the sector too? Because um, COP28 just happened. Major producers were in some ways pulling back from renewables over the course of 2023. I mean, that was a debate we're having through the lens of BP, whether others were just as committed. The messaging, the optics looked a, a little bit dicey at times leading up to COP as well. What happens next year? I mean, carbon capture has been talked about a lot. It's been a new area of growth for some of these players. The renewable side obviously going to be quite key when they can get scale. What do you think 2024 holds on this journey? I don't think 24 is going to be much different from what we've seen in 23, right? This is very much a long-term thing, right, in terms of where are we going? Uh, and I know there was a lot of debate about phase out and phase down and so on. The reality is, I've maintained this, we are going to require all forms of energy. As you know, Africa develops and Asia develops, Latin America, I mean, we continue to look at transition from a very Western lens. We need to stop doing that. Um, and I think what, that's one of the things you keep seeing at these COPs and that emerging market countries are saying, we need, we need basic energy. Forget like green energy. I think that's one of the big issues over here. I think the focus more and more, hopefully, becomes on decarbonizing hydrocarbons. And you are getting that, like you mentioned, with some of the majors as well. And offshore wind has been, for a lack of better word, a disaster. Can I ask you one quick yeah. question? I spoke to Darren Woods. It, I was thrilled to be able to speak to him at COP. Didn't speak to Mike Worth. Um, is there a schism developing here or is Chevron going to come on board, do you think? No, I do think, I mean, look, pretty much all the majors, they're trying to balance it, right? Both of them and Chevron Exxon in particular. Yeah. But the uh, European majors have had to uh, go down the green path a lot quicker. It's not that um, any of the majors are opposed to uh, green policy or green energy. I think they are investing a lot. Yeah. I think it's the balancing act between, look, we are still going to require oil and gas. So why don't we produce that oil and gas in a more sustainable fashion, ca capture the carbon and then deliver it? rather than flare it. I think that's the balance. And I think you are going to see that these companies actually win out over those who are just focusing on renewables. Yes, and I love the, the methane announcement. I really do, because mm -hmm. like you, I've been looking at methane and the, the, the tragedy that is methane flaring and yes. venting for a long time. But, but it didn't address scope three. No, it didn't. <laughs> it but really that, did. that was, and that's the issue, right? One of the things you're seeing, I know uh, we're running over, I guess, but is refining. Yeah. The thing you are seeing none of these majors investing in is oil refining because of scope three. They know it's probably coming down the line. Nobody wants to uh, invest in oil refineries. And that's why, regardless of what crude does, by the way, look at gasoline and diesel prices. They are going to remain high. And unfortunately, that's what you and I pay. Indeed it is. And Amrita, I never have a conversation without, without learning something. So thank you very thank much you. for chatting to Karen and myself today. We came in early on you and we've left late. So I'm in a lot of trouble with the producers already. Let's tell you what's coming up on the show. Israel comes under increasing pressure from its international allies over the human cost of its war in Gaza. We'll discuss next. Also, we'll look at the key elections taking place in 2024, including in the United States and UK, where the incumbents may want to look away from some of the recent polling data. And is the wealth gap widening between Germany's big banks and other credit institutions? We'll look at the state of the German financial market with Bain & Co's Walter Sinn at 8.30 CET.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Well, as Karen mentioned in the headlines, shipping firms are avoiding the Red Sea and Suez Canal after a spate of attacks from Houthi militants uh, on commercial vessels in the area. MSC is one of the latest to make the decision after one of its ships was attacked by a drone on Friday, sustaining fire damage. The UK confirmed it shot down a suspected attack drone targeting Red Sea shipping on Saturday. Defence Minister Grant Shapps said the action was carried out by a Royal Navy ship which is in the area to uh, help maintain maritime security. Maersk has also diverted shipping away from the area, telling CNBC that recent attacks pose a significant threat to employees. The company's decision, along with a pause in Red Sea shipping from German company Habak Lloyd, means shipping firms representing around 40% of global trade are avoiding the area. Mask CEO Vincent Clark will be speaking to CNBC. Don't miss that interview at 5 p.m. CET Tuesday. Israel is facing mounting pressure from some of its closest European allies over the humanitarian cost of its offensive against Hamas, with the UK, France and Germany stepping up calls for a ceasefire. NBC's Hala Garani filed this report. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is hinting that he is open to negotiations with Hamas. His exact words, we have serious criticism of, as criticisms of Qatar, about which I suppose you will hear in due course. But now we are trying to complete the recovery of our hostages. Hamas, for its part, has said in a statement that it will only talk if the Israeli military ceases attacks on Palestinians once and for all. And the group said that it communicated this message to the Qataris, which have been leading negotiations as they continue to maintain relationships with the political leadership of Hamas. Now, Israel, in the meantime, is continuing its air and ground offensives inside the Gaza Strip, and uh, it is announcing that 116 of its soldiers have been killed since the beginning of that ground assault. On the Palestinian side, a much, much higher death toll. According to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health, 18,700 Palestinians have died since October 7th. 90% of the territory is displaced or homeless, and half, according to UN agencies, are facing potential starvation. The families of the hostages uh, still detained inside of the Gaza Strip have vented their anger. They protested after, protested after the Israeli military admitted to accidentally killing three hostages inside the territory, and some of them are now camping out in outside the Ministry of Defense and say they won't move until their government promises to do more to get their loved ones out. Hello, Garani there. Uh, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva has urged Ukraine's allies to release billions of dollars in delayed aid, warning further holdups could hit the country's economic recovery. The EU and US have both failed to agree to uh, come to agreements on further funding for Kyiv 
According to last month's budget, Ukraine is counting on $41 billion in support from its allies. 2024 will be a big year for elections with the headline act a potential Trump-Biden rematch stateside. Sylvia has more on what to expect. 2024 will be marked by several elections that could have ramifications across the globe. Starting with the US, voters will head to the polls in November. At the moment, the most likely choice seems to be between the current president, Joe Biden, and the former president, Donald Trump. The latest polling suggesting a closely fought race with a YouGov poll in early December, suggesting a 1% lead for President Biden. Though a lot can change between now and November, this election will no doubt be followed across the world. Here in the UK, the Prime Minister is due to call an election before the end of the year. Regardless of the timing, though, the vote will likely put an end to 14 years of conservative leadership and therefore start a new chapter in British politics. You can see in the latest polling that at the moment the Labour Party is ahead when it comes to those voting intentions. I also want to take you to Europe because citizens across all 27 member states are also heading to the polls in June. Recent domestic votes have raised concerns about the rise of the far right in Europe and hence we could be looking at a more fragmented European Parliament. Looking at India now, they will also have a parliamentary vote in 2024. At the moment, the party of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi is firmly in pole position to win this vote. Though this is not a democratic vote, Russia is also due to have a presidential election in 2024. Experts have said that Putin has looked at cementing his power since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and he is therefore unlikely to go anywhere. At the same time, there's also a chance that Ukraine will have a vote for a presidential election during 2024, even if the war continues to drag. Regardless of both outcomes, the war between Kyiv and Moscow is likely to remain a critical issue throughout next year. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.